and it just began to feel like, is the why isn't this working? And is it my fault? And we replaced one of those cars, and uh, and then a hundred-year-old tree from across the street fell on that car on the replacement. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 46 of the Balance Room Music Podcast. I am your host, musician and producer Ingrid Wood, W-O-O-D-E. This podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and a few different other apps for you to subscribe to. That way, whenever I upload a new episode, you'll just get one automatic notification letting you know there's something new for you to listen to inside of the Balance Room. To my new and returning listeners, welcome I appreciate you for listening. To my new listeners, this is not a podcast just for music lovers or musicians, but rather this is a podcast for creative people who already are or who have a desire to make a living from their creative side. So I share parts of my journey in here, and I also bring in guests from time to time and have conversations with them inside the balance room, and I share those conversations with you all via this podcast. Speaking of guests, I am bringing a new guest into the balance room by the name of Troy Bronzik, founder of The Hive, a nonprofit located in a part of town called The North Side in Cincinnati, Ohio. Troy's going to explain what exactly The Hive is and his role there in just a sec. I met Troy a little over a year ago at a small business event at a venue called The Urban Artifact, which is, is literally like about 25 feet from the hive's back door. Uh, Troy led one of the sessions at this event and I introduced myself afterwards. Now to my surprise, when I went to the hive this this summer, summer 2017, to record this conversation you're about to hear, Troy remembered me and he welcomed me with open arms. And for me, it, it really made the conversation a lot more enjoyable and personal from the get-go. I decided to edit this episode completely different than I have any of the other 45 episodes. For my new listeners, normally I have a few different segments with their own theme song intros, and I edit out most of my voice from these conversations. And I, and I tried to do that when I was first started editing this episode, but uh, I decided that this conversation would really come across more genuine if I stripped those segments away, kept my voice in, and just presented the conversation as is with minimal editing. We talk about everything from burnout to how to put the pieces back together. And Troy also takes us through a short meditation exercise. So without further ado, let's go ahead and step into the balance room. Well, I'm Troy Bronsink. I'm the director and founder of The Hive, a con- uh, what we call The Hive, a center for contemplation, art, and action. And uh, we're in this uh, um, old rectory, which is kind of like the where the priest would live next to an old church. And the whole property now is owned by a microbrewery. And in this, uh, in the space that we're in right now is a room where we have a number of different classes we'll teach from uh, poetry writing to uh, yoga classes to artist's way. Um, I'm gonna teach a class um, in July on uh, inhabiting the prayers of the mystics. So, um, so yeah, so th- that's some of what I do here in this space. We're in Northside neighborhood of uh, uh, Cincinnati. I want to take it back just for a second. Can you describe um, what what your life was like, what your profession was, or the many professions that you had? Kind of like the 
the seven to, to ten year span before the hive became the hive? That's a big question. So, so my background, I um, pretty early out of college was involved in like youth ministry and uh, working in, on campuses with students, and then was a uh, musician that would work in uh, in faith based places and in churches, and then was trained in seminary to be a, a pastor, but I had always wanted to also still work on the, at the edges with artists and uh, community organizers. And so 10 years ago, I would have been um, in Atlanta, in Southwest Atlanta, um, a neighborhood that had a number of Section 8 homes, number of elderly folks that had retired, blue collar workers that had retired from the Ford plant, and, a, uh, and urban creatives that had kind of moved in and lived together. And at that time, a lot of what I would do is uh, like community conversations, bring people together in the living rooms to talk about their various dreams and concerns about their neighborhood, since these folks were coming from different walks of life. And there I learned a lot of skills um, just by screwing up and making mistakes, but potlucks and different things that would get folks talking and, uh, and kind of hosting that space, all the while still being a pastor and a uh, spiritual director, somebody that would walk with folks through kind of thinking about their faith practice, their, the way that I think at that time the language I would have used is um, the way that their faith inspires them to engage the world um, as an agent of change and, and goodwill and justice. And, but interestingly, so we're in 2017, by 2012, a lot of things fell apart for us. We hit burnout, my wife and I, in a really powerful way. Um, and it included things like funding falling apart for our nonprofit work. Um, a lot of the leaders that had moved to that neighborhood before the economic crash of 2007 and 8 were now moving out of the neighborhood to uh, go to graduate school or moving overseas because there wasn't a lot of um, opportunity in the nonprofit social sector by that point. Um, so jump forward, then we moved to Cincinnati and uh, and in that process, I took a fairly conventional job with a congregation, but I always still had a desire to be back into in a city kind of urban environment, and increasingly had a desire to be working with people outside of faith, the faith sector, and especially outside of my faith tradition. And I noticed how difficult it was to bring folks uh, to collaborate when you're inside your own congregational space. And so the Hive was really born in the last two years, really out of a desire to bring together um, people from different walks of life, yoga teachers that might um, orient more in kind of a Zen or uh, Hindu or yogi kind of um, um, orientation faith-wise, uh, Catholics. Uh, um, uh, last week, Rabbi Miriam and I were in here talking about a project she wants to do called Shabbatish, um, and then some folks from the Salam community, which is a um, emerging Sufi uh, um, Muslim community. And so all these different folks and then people that aren't of particular faith but are like writers or artists that want to be here. Um, we can kind of convene a space where folks can grow as artists, grow as activists, and grow in their uh, um, kind of interior contemplative life. Um, so, you know, I do a lot of... Seven years ago, I would have been doing a ton of different things, but not really risking starting a business like this because at the time I needed to kind of work inside of a, 
more institutional structure, and that came with some limits, but it also came with some uh, security blankets um, as well, which at the time was what we needed. I want to go into your 7-Up story. Uh-huh. Um, so again, it's like, it's something, it could be inspirational, it could be business, uh, but some sort of, of takeaway, um, you know, that you think somebody would, would gain something from. Mm-hmm. So part of inventing the hive was that uh, um, burnout, which I know you talk quite a bit about, uh, burnout, um, it's heartbreaking. Um, it can uh, it can cause people to give up on dreams. Um, it kind of can reinforce the inner critic. And you start thinking, oh, I, I knew this wouldn't work out. Um, and I think that happens with artists a lot. They try some very big risks, and if the it doesn't... Uh, the the market doesn't hold, they begin to think it's because that I don't have good music, um, which really, once you're around long enough, you realize it has nothing to do with the quality of the artist. It has to do with this crazy chance of how things fit with a market. And the same, I think, with, uh, with activists. I started to see a lot of folks who would take on some pretty substantial causes and give a decade of their life to this, and at the end, um, their life had fallen apart, their relationships had fallen apart, they'd become, uh, they'd, they'd develop different dependencies and habits to just try to get it through. And at the end, it was like, was it even worth it? And often, maybe it didn't happen. That whole dream that they'd given 10 years to didn't happen the same way that a, somebody that puts together an album doesn't happen in it. So starting, uh, starting The Hive has been a lot about meeting folks in that space. Um, and, uh, and we get stories in here a lot of somebody who's like, I've been trying to learn to meditate on my own, but, uh, but now that I've got a class that's six or eight weeks long where I can learn this with other people, I can get a little more rooted. Um, and uh, I would say a, a lot of that connects to my own experience. Like when we hit the wall in Atlanta, um, the... Uh, it, it's pretty crazy. Like all the resources started to dry up. Um, so the, a major um, denomination that was going to fund our work there decided to ch- change their emphasis from urban work to suburban uh, kind of growth work. And they just said, it's not a fit. And that was just heartbreaking. Then uh, the school that my wife was involved in, there was just some more combativeness and it became more and more tense and difficult for her each week to go to work. Um, and then at one point, uh, we, were, we were in a neighborhood that had street parking, and a kid uh, stole a SUV from uh, some other neighborhood and came through. And as they were coming around the corner, um, it, it kind of just driving fast, they missed the corner and got up on the curb and wrecked our car into our other car while my wife and my daughter, who would have been about eight at the time, was on the porch watching it. And, uh, and it just began to feel like, um, it, is the, why isn't this working? And is it my fault? Um, and we replaced one of those cars, and, uh, and then a hundred-year-old tree from across the street fell on that car, on the replacement. <laughs> and the, the house that we had bought um, that we thought would be like... Um, 
because we weren't being paid much for, I wasn't being paid much for what I was doing. We thought a lot of the investment was the work on the house and that sort of stuff. And then the market flipped the other direction and, uh, and a house that we'd purchased at 180 was appraised for 37,000. So it just all started falling apart. Um, and I would say when we, I say we, cause I, my wife was deeply involved in all of that. The stakes are high when you live that way as a family, as a couple. Um, but I, I took a break and, um, went to, a kind of a week long recovery place for folks that are crashing on this kind of stuff. And there was a spiritual director and a counselor and a psychologist and a coach and they'd work with you every day and it got more and more deep and eventually I just realized like um I realized the first part of the bad news and then there's I I think there is some news that follows it but the first part of the bad news is that uh um my dreams aren't supposed to all supposed to come true like the like the um all of the things I think I'm creating to save myself aren't working. Um, later on, uh, there's a Buddhist quote that says, uh, the bad news is, uh, is that you're falling and there's nothing to hold on to. And that's what began to happen for me, kind of the falling. Um, and it's, uh, it's heartbreaking to want to bring something meaningful into the world um, and to be so attached and driven by that vision that you bring other people along and then you're there's this web of it feels bigger than life I think there's a there's a lot of meaning to that quote bigger that phrase bigger than life because it isn't all of it real a lot of it is all those projected assumptions that I needed it to be and it felt really heavy and so then when that begins to fall, it feels like the world is falling. Um, and I would say what began during that time of deconstruction then um, was living without holding on to those other possibilities. They still happen. We can, I'd, I'd look forward to talking more about it as we go here. But what began then was the other half of the quote, which is... Uh, bad news is you're falling and there's nothing to hold on to. The good news is there's no bottom, which is really refreshing to know um, that all of life happens through that falling and that risking, that that, that that vulnerable place is where the sacred and the magical starts to show up. So for me, um, you invent a place like this with that desire, but then it also has to have that it submits to that rule as well that this place isn't guaranteed to work. My job as founder director isn't guaranteed to, to work no matter how hard I stack everything in the right direction. It still is heavily dependent on, um, a deeper magic. And, uh, and that turns out to take care of me enough, take care of my wife and family enough. Um, but not the way that I'd want to when I can control it. What do you mean when you say not the way that you wanted to when you could control it? So when I th- I thought it, it's a great question. So when I thought I could, I think you grow up early and think that pain is the product of um, um, something you should be ashamed of. So an error, you get smarter, and then you don't commit that error again. 
Well, in my family, when you growing up, not committing that error meant that you was a sign of being a good boy, being more enlightened. And committing that error was a sign of being ignorant or even at some point kind of shameful then. Like, like why don't you know that your elbow knocks over milk? You know, but that goes all the way across life then. Why don't you know that um, you can't spend grant money before it's sent to you? Well, you don't know till you try it. And then you realize, oh, crap, you got to wait till the check is in the bank if you're going to be using that money for that. Why don't you know that facilitators want to have a deeper relationship with their evaluation process and not just, you know, there's just different things you learn when you're starting something that you don't know before that. So a lot of times we'll spend time as a staff here at the hive going like, all right, so how's it going? Like, what did you, what did you learn? Because we, none of us have done this before. We aren't, um, a group of pros that just got helicoptered in with all these expertise that aren't affected by the context. We're figuring it out live. It's all jazz. You're just figuring it out playing what can I play today and honestly I could play a couple different lines they'd all be great so uh and they also all don't have any guarantees with them so what do I want to play and can I be deliberative um but usually control feels different than that it's like there's a there's a right line I'm supposed to play and everybody's going to look at me if I don't play it the right way or I need to choose the right line so that I don't waste this opportunity I'm kind of a big deal chaser by instinct my ego wants to like make sure it's the made the best out of this opportunity and um that's sometimes too much pressure it you don't always have to make the best you just show up i just from the little bit that i know about you i mean i think for creatives there's some creatives who i think anybody who's creative you're you are giving yourself uh you know through your pain and from your joy you are giving yourself to other people Mm -hmm. sometimes indirectly just by you know standing in front of a mic and performing or writing a play or what whatever the case may be um but there's some creatives like you who um you create an atmosphere uh you create a creative atmosphere to help other people directly and i know i know firsthand sometimes that can it can honestly be kind of draining because you Mm. know there's things that you want to do you know there's energy that you want to put into your own projects into your own um i want to learn how to do this i want to get better at this for me and so Mm. and you talk about burnout does that does the burnout that you may feel periodically from giving yourself to other people um for their betterment and for yours too because sometimes Mm -hmm. you know when you're going through a rut helping somebody else can help you too right um but when you deal with that burnout from directly helping other people, does it affect you creatively in your own space, you know, to be able to write songs or to be inspired to do things independently? That's great. There's a couple of different ways, I, I, things that brings up. One is it is, it, it's a, it's, at times it can feel kind of like a Greek tragedy, like it's comical to, uh, to say that your work is, addressing burnout um and pretend that you don't burn out right like it's like so it's there for sure and i'm always learning tricks to become aware of burnout and how what the symptoms are and how that affects my family who can tell you that i'm as normal as everybody else and my you know coworkers, folks that have worked for me or folks that don't want to work for me anymore because i'm a normal person and there's just I got my own stuff. 
Um, but I do think, um, I don't, I'm, I'm, my kind of personality, I don't feel like I'm trading one for another. So I wouldn't say that I'm, there are times where this work is not creative. And that, that requires some discipline. And for a while, it was almost, a, I would say, I would see discipline almost as a dissociative thing where I'm like going out of my body and just staying in my head and doing spreadsheets and blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, good boys work hard kind of a thing. And it still shows up sometimes. And that's what leads to burnout when you're living in that, just in your head and not getting back into your body. Um, so the importance is to get into my body. My, pra- my meditation practice is really key to that. Biking can be key to that. Singing can be key to that. So I'll pick up a guitar and I'm back in my body. And it's just amazing. Like I can just feel my feet rooted to the earth. But I had a real gift. Um, Holly Sharp is an artist in uh, Portland, Oregon. And we were in uh, New Mexico together, a bunch of friends. This would have been, this is when things were starting to fall apart in Atlanta. And we were talking about our art. And I, you know, I said, you know, I really do. At that moment, I was like, what I really wish I was was a traveling singer-songwriter, like, and, and like that that was the whole gig. And, um, and she was like, but your art has been with people all along. Like, you, you shape spaces that people um, come alive in the way that, that the greats shape songs and bands the way that music comes alive. And uh, that was such a gift. Um, and learning more about that relationship, I sometimes use an illustration, uh, the documentary that uh, uh, about Andy Goldsworthy, who is a um, installation artist, a naturalist installation artist, and he'll make these uh, ephemeral art things, uh, stuff that's made out of leaves or stones that's supposed to wash away or be blown over. And in there, he's in this relationship with. Uh, he, he talks about the relationship he has with the material that he's creating with. I'm getting back to your question here, right? So he'll talk, the sculptor's, sculptor is saying this flagstone and the ways that I stack it together to make this huge eight-foot cone shape out on the shore. The stone won't hold. It keeps caving in. And each time it, he tries to stack it, it, it keeps caving in. And at some point he finally goes, I, uh, um, this is the fourth time I think he says this fell down and... Uh, um, each time I'm learning more about the stone, it's talking to me. Um, and then in kind of a little quip, he goes like, obviously I don't understand it very well yet because <laughs> it doesn't stack. I think that, uh, that that's a courageous way of doing art of being a maker is, uh, is putting together the songs, putting together the lyrics, putting together the movie, putting together the um, restaurant um, uh, and in my case, putting together these um, containers that are the shapes of short classes or the shapes of how do you train and equip facilitators to uniquely take people through some deep waters. Um, containers like retreats and events, um, our own podcast where we do some of this. All of that is about shaping space to allow people to come alive. And, uh, and whenever I start to think I know and understand people, um, I'm missing it. And when instead I can allow it to flourish or fail and see that as a sign of like the, the beauty and the art of humanity and allow them to be what they are the way a song could be what it is, um, it, uh, it's much more freeing. Um, so it goes back to that control stuff. There's not anything I can hold on to at the same time. Uh, um, 
burnout comes when I'm trying to hold on to it too strong. There's a, I might be jumping the gun here. Um, you, you're, you were going to ask about a song, and there's a song that came to me one time. Um, a couple songs. I used to hear people say this, you know, um, that feel like they were given a song, you know. After years of writing, there's times where you write a song because you just got to, you, you want to get this one done. Sometimes you write a song because something needs to be said right away. And sometimes you're just sitting there and a song comes and I, you know, I don't know. So this one, uh, it has kind of a mantra feel to it. And it's, it's rooted in, in my tradition. There's a story where Jesus, who was this rabbi, would talk about how we can hold um, responsibility as a participant instead of as somebody who's scared of what to do with it. And so there's a story where um, this uh, big investor, she gives um, each, she's going to go out of town and she gives each person a certain um, amount of uh, investment to manage. And, uh, and one of them uh, has a little bit, and then one of them has a medium bit, and another one has a lot of bit. It's kind of like Goldilocks, right? So the one with the, a lot of bit, um, five talents they're called, right, figures out because he's a good investor how to make that into 10. And so what you expect in a story like that is the, 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 the manager returns and goes like, way to go. You know, it's awesome. Um, thank you for paying attention and doing this. And then somebody that was given a medium amount um, doubles their investment and it's like, great. And then she turns and goes to the, the last person and that person was so afraid of disappointment, so afraid that he was going to be sized up by the work that he was doing that he buried that investment like he hid it under the mattress and didn't want to do anything with it um, and uh, so the song is just this really simple almost like a mantra because it uh, um, the in the middle it's two couplets and in the middle the couplet rolls into the other couplet so it, it kind of finishes its sentence in this really nice way so it says hold on to these things but don't hold them so tightly because what you hold so tightly, you no longer hold for me, but for you. Hold on to these things, but don't hold them so tightly. Because what you hold so tightly, you no longer hold for me, but for you. Hold on to these things, don't hold them so tightly. Because what you hold so tightly, you no longer hold for me, but for you. Hold on to these things. Don't hold them so tightly Cause what you hold so tightly You no longer hold for me But for you hold on to these things The meaning of that has gotten bigger and bigger over the years for me. Um, in, in one sense, it's a devotional song that can be sung in the Christian tradition because it's a story told in the scriptures. But it's also so much deeper because it's also this recognition that we're always handing each other things to hold and if we if our ego is attached to holding them right um, we'll start to judge one another right away or we'll start to judge ourselves and all of that blockage keeps it from being fluid and flowing so the invitation is just hold it but hold it lightly like you don't I'm not asking you to like whatever you do don't fuck this up like it's got to be more like just hold it lightly, and uh, and we'll be good. And that is that a song that that you created? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. It sounds 
even just the way you said it, it sounds very, very meditative. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, along those lines, um, and no, no one person is one-dimensional. Um, but just looking at you, you know, you're a musician, you're a facilitator, uh, you're an entrepreneur, a father, a husband. How? How or why is meditation important in in your overall life? No matter, you know, whether it's with the creative side or whether it's being a husband, how is how and why is meditation an important part of your life now? Wow. Thanks for asking that. Um, gosh. At first, I think um, meditation connects to all of those things because all of those things can get caught to different concerns. Concerns about managing or concerns about being right. So concerns about managing, like I don't want to screw up my kids and I also don't want them to irritate me. You know, this is like the jerk dad. We're getting ready to get in the car to drive to Atlanta for eight hours. Like at a certain point, you know, I just don't want them to be so annoying that I don't get through the eight hours, right? There's that. Uh, That's the managing. And then the being right, there's this other sense of like, I can be really attached to that moment in a way that I don't want to fail them or I don't want to fail the world or I don't want to be viewed as um, a bad dad or a jerk or um, or like a really uh, irresponsible, artistic, free spirit dad that never gave his kid any boundaries. All of those things, all of that projection is kind of upward facing. So if you could see my hands like the the managing is the lower fashion those things are trying to get done in the world and the upper is like the ego and the how will I be perceived and to me meditation is a rest from both of those places um, so the first kind of step in the, in the meditation for me is like I need a freaking break from both of those to-do lists um, but it goes a lot farther than that because then what starts to happen is if you hold open space um, and if you can hold it in your whole body, so you kind of move it around so you're not just in your head, but it drops down into your vulnerable heart and drops down into your breath, holding that open space, um, there becomes an acquaintance with something, someone, um, with a way that's bigger. We've been able to talk about it here at The Hive in some pretty powerful ways without being uh, exclusive in religious ways. So it's not, um, even an, an atheist, they would call it the God um, particle or the God gene, and it's that there's a part in us that needs to consent, um, kind of like an AA, a higher power. Um, and if you hold that space that can consent, um, and in a sense almost concede even, that this isn't all held by you, when you make space for that, I'll say for myself, when I make space for that, there's a qualitative difference to being at home in this body. It's not driven by shame. And at times it has a rest from ego and aggrandizement. Like it's simply allowing this moment to flow. So to me, meditation first is kind of survival. But then the other part is that it actually develops a type of intimacy and groundedness to know that we are at home here, that we aren't forgotten, that we aren't in trouble, um, that we aren't, um, you know, this many steps away from being enough, but instead you hold that open space of meditation and I think there's a quality of presence that emerges where you go, this is enough. 
And what's crazy is that you put that into entrepreneurship and it's badass. It's amazing that we can create things. We can test them. I don't know. Do you use, uh, do you talk with folks sometimes around uh, design thinking or lean design? And uh, so there's Eric Rice has this great book called Lean Design and it's on kind of design thinking models and how to, you have a hypothesis around where this is going to be valuable and you have to test that hypothesis rigorously because you don't know. So if you're like an A&R artist and you've got 16, or A&R executive and you've got 16 musicians, you're, you're putting that out everywhere you can to find out which one's going to hit. Or if you're a fisherman, you're going to figure out which lure works for this hole. You have to do that. Well, the same is true with entrepreneurship. You don't know how a business is going to work. Um, no matter how much data you crunch, you're, you're always going to be fishing or throwing it out there to see. And so uh, if you know that you're not bad, if you know that you're not, there's nothing to be ashamed about, if you have a practice where you can begin to go, I'm at home in this body, then those risks are really more like um, adventures, they're curiosity, and um, you don't bet too much on them, but you also don't, uh, um, you become aware, I become aware of my fear sooner and can kind of at times take a break from it and not be afraid so that you take another risk. Um, and it, it changes the quality of your relationships, that kind of meditation. So you end up in deeper waters with people quickly. Sometimes that can uh, surprise someone that like you can become that type of friend and then they start to project and you start to project and then you got to do that work. But that's where it starts to just become really alive. Switch gears just for a second. That's great. So to the person who... Um, you know, who may not be able to drive down the street or drive 45 minutes to come here. Say you speak to to this person um, across the map or across the world who is in a place where uh, they are creative and they have something that they love to do and they're really great at it, but they feel like it's something in them, it's something that their life, life experiences, the people around them have told them, and they feel like this thing that you love to do, that you are great at, that most people see as a hobby, that it's not something that you can do that will in some way, shape, or form uh, compensate you. And, and I, like a lot of people yeah. had, a, had an issue, not even an issue, when I decided to leave my job as a chemist, you know, it was sort of calculated. And I spent my years there kind of knowing that's what I wanted to do. Um, and people who sort of had an issue with it, I was like, you know, if God was able to provide for me doing something that I like to do, you know, I would hope that he'd be able to provide for me doing something that I love to do. Mm. And there's truth in that. There's struggle in it yeah. as well. You know, it's a good thing to say when, you know, you have this in your bank account and your 401k looks like this right now and all mm -hmm. that sorts of stuff. But as time goes, you know, um, yeah, what, what would you say to that person who, who's in that place where they feel like, mm -hmm. I love to do this thing, but there's no possible way that I could do this. I could wake up every day and do this and be able to pay my light bill, and my electric mm -hmm. bill, and go to the doctor. Man, there's a lot of things in there. You said the word hobby. It made me think a new thought that I'd like to kind of play with. Is I, I think the notion that we would, like it would even be interesting just to even look at history and go like, the professionalization of society, like 
at a certain point, your role in life was your dad was a cobbler, so you're a cobbler. Your mom was a queen, so you're a prince. It just kind of, uh, there wasn't a lot of shifting of those roles. Now, um, there becomes a moment where those roles, in, in a desire for there to be liberty and equity, we say everybody has access to every role, but we confuse what that role looks like when we're also trying to figure out how does your engagement in life provide some kind of deter um, reliable revenue and structure. So there's some artists that live off of very little. And like a lot of the indie artists that, you, that I've come to appreciate when you find out what they actually live off of because they spend it all on the instruments and they are on the road and they aren't paying for good hotels and that's their life. And yet you think, oh, I wish I had that life. You realize like they, they, own, they only own a trailer full of instruments. And, uh, and then the rest is like couch surfing, you know? The notion that my, my daughter who loves to sing and would like to be a travel, uh, you know, I'd imagine would like to be a musician. She's 14 right now. Um, she is a musician, but would like to, you know, like that it fits in that area you're talking about. For her to expect to have that and have a house and have a 401k, it's just like nobody, very few people have proven that that's even doable. So the question really is, what do you need? What's enough? And if you love what you do, can you do it with less? That's a part of it. I also think there's a, um, a lot of artists also have a real tendency to be able to play the victim. And sometimes we see the free market as a victimizer. And it's interesting, I, as soon as I said that, I felt bad saying it because I do still think that late modern capitalism is horribly stacked against a lot of people. So uh, um, I'm not saying that capitalism is actually free or is deified in any way and is fair, but that the artist is disadvantaged in that system um, is only a small part of where the disadvantage is. And an artist that might need to wait tables in order to make the space to create the beautiful things she loves. Um, the problem isn't that why can't she be Adele and can't there be more money for more Adele's? The problem is also like why do we think she's less of a person because she's waiting tables to create and make great music out in the world. So some of it there is also that fishing part that I talked about. Like most of the artists we've come to know have this, um, in, in popular terms, they caught a wave and it's, it has very little to do with their surfboard. It has more to do with like the storm that made the wave. And so uh, if our ego is wrapped up into holding on to these, let's go back to that, holding on to my surfboard being right and every, whether I get a wave or not is a sign whether or not I'm significant in the world, that's where the, where the disappointment is inevitable. So let's go back to your question. You said, well, you know, there's the artist across, it's not at the hive or wherever that's far away, what do they do about sustaining their creative work? And they're wondering, do they leap out on their own? And I would say uh, leaping out as a habit is um, what traditionally has been called faith. I'm really for that. <laughs> I really think that you come alive when you leap. Um, but pretending that it's not scary is foolish. I think you're missing it out. So you need people around you that go like, you're okay. Whether, whether, this catch, whether the road rises to meet you or not, um, you're okay. We, we believe in you. Um, you need space where 
your uh, creative process can grow without the critic. And so you don't want to write your first song, throw it out there for everybody to, to evaluate, I'm using air quotes, and then accept that as like a sign whether or not you should do this. Like it has nothing to do with one song and one group of friends telling you whether it's good or bad. Um, but I do think you have to plan and make little steps and each of those steps will feel incredibly scary. Um, and then you have to learn from what happens in those steps. And, uh, in entrepreneurship, it's called pivoting. But I think that's really big. A lot of artists would say, I have to be true. I'm not going to pivot. I was supposed to be a rapper that speaks half in Spanish and only talks about Salvador Dali artwork. And like, if there's not a market for that, you have no shot. And you can't blame the world. Like You have to go like you're betting so hard on that one thing that you're burying it and saying, it's going to have to be my way out. And you meet a lot of artists, they have so many different skills and one of them caught. And so it's like that, you just kind of let it play out there. Um, I would want to say don't be afraid, but I also would say like, don't, uh, when, you make a, when, when you make an assumption of what success and failure are, don't attach extra value to fa- failure in a way that you think you've been blessed by the gods um, or um, you worked hard enough so you deserve it. And the same is true with success. When something comes to you, don't mistake that for you just got chosen by the gods um, or that uh, it, you, this is your comeuppance because you've bootstrapped this and you've made it come into the world um, because it's all of the above and, and there is a, it sinks up. I hope that's helpful. I, I think there are people who are struggling as artists and I have a lot of um, praise for them and there are some people that are struggling as artists, and I think it's because they're addicted and they aren't healthy. Um, and so uh, they, they, they think that to create more will, will bring some promise. And, uh, and for those folks, I want uh, peace and comfort and a, and a healthy detachment so that they can come home. I, I'm interested to know, what is, what is your team? Um... Uh, because, you know, I think everybody, you kind of have a point where you kind of got to do things by yourself. Um, but when you are uh, able to kind of have that, those team of people, whether it's that person who says, you know, um, is your support system or whether it's that person who helps you with your emails or mm-hmm. whatever that case is, mm-hmm. what is your, your team here that kind of helps things go fluid and, and kind of probably saves you from a little bit of burnout as oh, well? Oh, yeah. No, Definitely. It's interesting. There was a time, it just reminds me when you say it that way, I, there was a time when I first got started and leapt out doing some of this in Atlanta when I thought I needed a team and I hired people and uh, it, it cost too much money and I didn't have enough work for them. So it really didn't make sense. So this has come more gradually, like as it's needed and then going like, oh, that's really helpful. So I would say um, I have a coach that I talk with every week. Um, and uh, our call is usually uh, about an hour, hour and a half, um, and he's intimately involved in how we manage the finances at the Hive, as well as uh, how I develop my own career. He's asked a lot. He's great at asking open questions that really give me the chance to discover it myself. We've been working together for four and a half years, so maybe not a, three and a half years. Yeah. Um, that's invaluable. Um, I have a number of mentors that 
end up being somebody I can um, hit ideas off of. One in particular is a uh, um, works a lot with integral thought and uh, and the enneagram of personality, which is a way of kind of understanding our uh, our ego structure and the shadow side of that, but also then kind of where we where we tap into energy and the energy we use in the world. And so we get to we meet. I meet at her office maybe every two or three weeks, and I'll do some process work with her and sometimes some specific like this is breaking down with my staff or whatever in this way and then the team uh before i jump to the team here directly at the hive i also then have a uh, seven months ago hired a personal sense assistant who works uh 10 hours a week for me and uh and she doesn't live in cincinnati she uh for a while she was living in uh the bay area but then she lived in uh um, kind of south of the Bahamas for a while and now is in the Philippines. And she is, uh, she has an email, like, for us to make an appointment with Wilmina. She, uh, you know, it, but she's not here. He doesn't see the hive. But she's, tactically, it's a really great process for me because uh, the hardest part about my work is being able to say yes to appointments and prioritize those. And so I, I literally outsource that. That's how we made the appointment for today. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll have Wilmina find us a time, and then I don't look again at it. Um, that is money well spent for me. Some of that the, comes out of the Hive budget because it's particular to Hive stuff, and then some of that I pay her personally for that. And then here at the Hive, we have um, five other folks that are part of the lead team. A couple of them receive some stipends for that work. Um, a couple of them do it entirely volunteer. Everybody works way more than they're getting paid, though, to do it. Um, so uh, Denise's work, she's been with us the longest. She works on uh, arranging classes and managing the facilitators. She manages then the registration and the, and the payment. She's not the bookkeeper necessarily for the Hive, but she definitely does all the hands-on bookkeeping right here. You know, kind of helps us look each week at the where's our petty cash at and those kind of things. Um, she's in, She's been fantastic to hold some of the... Um, structural things in place she's just great at it um uh kara works on um our hosting here so if you were to come to a class or an event at the hive there's somebody that'll welcome you when you come in and they're more than just like check it off the box or whatever they're also like can we get you some tea here's a little bit about the space um they're the first person that we hope when you come to the door says like i'm really glad to see you um, just so that this begins to feel like a home. And she organizes all the volunteers that do that. Um, and then we have a team member that works on development, Davey. And she and I have been working on uh, like reaching out to corporate sponsors and then how do we work with individual donors, what will fundraisers look like. Um, Anne has been uh, be the newest on the team, and, or she's not as new as Kara, but her position's newer and she's been working on how would we measure classes for, uh, for quality and effectiveness and uh, um, for getting one other. And then Maddie works with uh, um, membership culture and community. And so we have a, folks, some folks are members here at the Hive, which allow them to get, they're kind of become then a sustaining donor. And with that, there's some benefits in terms of class discounts and those sort of things. But we wanted to widen that and do more than just um, membership being a form of being a donor and so we, we're also working on like community events and then maybe even some uh, deeper dive long-range learning where somebody might be a part of a cohort for a period of time 
what, in February, mm-hmm. you started the, the new podcast. I think That's it right. was in February. Yeah. Um, so kind of what, tell, tell us about, tell the listeners about the podcast and um, I guess what was the, the idea behind starting the podcast or finally starting the podcast? Mm-hmm. The idea came from Joey Taylor, who has, who's um, a guy here that has been, um, he and his wife have been in and out of the hive the last year. And we, we meditate together here on Tuesday mornings. We do centering prayer practice. And, uh, and just with some friends, we've had more conversations like the ones we were having today. And he was like, I think other people would like to hear those conversations. And I was like, that's great. But my coach, this is where my team comes together. My coach is like, you don't need to be running a podcast. You need to run a business. All right. So Joey's like, I'll take care of it. And he literally, he really does take care of it. He helps me everything from like a lot of the folks we ask to be on the show are folks I have a friendship with. So I might be the first touch, but then Joey really makes it happen. He's the one that got the gear together to put to, so that we could record from Skype. And, and he also even kind of cues up and goes, here's some things, questions you might ask, or once you read this article before we get together with this person, those sort of things. And uh, it just helps. That's, it's been an interesting product to develop, uh, but also to be uh, to really benefit from somebody who's a go-getter that just wanted to do it as his own kind of desire. And what we came on, it's called From the Hive, and we do, uh, we do two things. Um, first is we interview somebody and ask them how a contemplative practice is related to their work. So it could be a uh, yoga teacher, that's a really easy one, right? Or it could be a graphic designer um, or a business coach. And we ask these different folks, how does your practice enable you to do your work better? And then we take a break and then we come back and they guide a guided meditation, which is like 15, 20 minutes long. And uh, so that way the listener moves from kind of the passive observing a conversation to a more active being guided in that meditation. And so you get a variety of different um, practices and uh, we even chunked it down now to pocket practices where if you go to the podcast um, on our site you can pull pull up a 15-20 minute pocket practice that's specific to something in a, a meditation you could use over and over. I asked Troy if we could do uh, some sort of meditation before we close out our conversation here. It's great. So yeah, we'll, we'll take about uh, five, uh, five, seven minutes here or so. What I want to invite you to do is... Uh, Go ahead and uh, stop the other work you're doing for a moment. If you're driving, you might want to just wait and do this later. Um, and, uh, and just get to a place where you can sit still um, and maybe even sit up, um, sit up where you can kind of feel your feet against the ground and, uh, and you're, you, know, you don't have to stress about your back being straight, but just kind of imagine a, uh, if you were a marionette doll and there was a string on top of your head and you just pulled that just a little bit and it let your uh, your neck set softly on your shoulders and that on your hips um, all the way to the ground. And uh, just start by taking a couple big breaths, breathing in uh, in your belly and your chest and your shoulders and then exhaling like you're blowing a candle out across the room. guide us through is just kind of a visualization 
meditation to get you a little more in your body. So with your eyes closed or with them kind of focused on a spot on the floor, um, closed nine-tenths, place your mind's attention on the wall across the room. So you're not looking at the wall, but you're just imagining being in that space, uh, just distance, a good distance away from yourself. And then walk that attention half the distance to a little closer to you. And now move that right in front of your chest. Book reading distance away. Each time you notice any tension in your body, just kind of relaxing and breathing. And then now move that attention through your body, through your belly and chest and back to a few inches behind your back. Um, that usually takes me a while to do. Just kind of soften your attention so that you can almost pay attention from behind. Now take your, uh, imagine that there's um, heat coming from the top of your head and just kind of um, moving off the top of your head over your skull and your neck, over the back of your shoulder blades, your shoulders and shoulder blades and lower back following your spine down to your sit bones, your hamstrings and calves and heels and to the floor. And just notice that whole space behind you, um, almost like you're uh, standing in front of a brick wall that's been warming in the sun all day. Now we're going to do a similar thing with the left, starting with the crown of your head and just scanning a few inches off of your body past your left temple, your left cheek, your left ear, your jaw, your neck and off the shoulder and arm and fingers. Still just breathing gently, moving past your hip and knee to your ankle and to the floor. And now place that same attention to the whole left side there. almost leaning into it. Now sweep across and notice the right in a similar fashion. Start with the crown of your head, your right temple, cheek, ear and jaw and neck, off the right shoulder and arm, right hand and fingers. Softening past your right side, your hip and knee and ankle into the floor. And now just notice that warmth there to your right. And if you notice you have any tension, just take a soft breath. Move back to the left. 
and now back again to the right. Now similarly from the front, starting with the crown of your head, past your brow, your eyes and nose, your sinuses and mouth, grateful for all that you've smelt and tasted and held, all the words. Down your throat, down to your heart, down past your chest and lungs to your solar plexus and your uh, diaphragm where we hold all that tension. And then down to where your breath sits there, a few inches below your navel. Noticing that whole field in front of you. A lot of times, as Westerners especially, we, know, we imagine ourselves being the self held inside of a body. But uh, just for a moment, noticing all four of those spaces from behind and to the left and right and in front of you, that yourself might be holding your body. As John O'Donohue would say, we're ensouled bodies rather than just embodied souls. Notice the gravity of the earth. And then just breathe up as if you're breathing up through the earth into your body. Filling up a cup from inside, filling it up with infinite love, giving itself away as this moment. This very particular moment while you're listening to this with all the sounds in the background and the colors and smells in this moment, breathing in love, breathing in wholeness. Allowing that to fill all the way up from your belly to your chest, to your neck, your mouth through your brain and then breathing that same love out into the world as if through the top of your head and with all the other sounds in the background and everything else going on just taking a moment now to be grateful for this practice for just paying attention giving yourself almost a little wink of appreciation for all that's happening there inside. And now, um, 
slowly wiggling fingers and toes, squinting your eyes just a little bit to come back to the room. And before you totally just blow back into your day, see if you can notice within again one more time, even with your eyes open. Thank you for sharing this practice with me. Do me this favor, you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, episode 46, or get at least one thing from this conversation with Troy, I encourage you to share it. And don't forget that you can subscribe to the Balance Room Music Podcast uh, via several different apps, including iTunes and SoundCloud and Google Play. If you live in Cincinnati or just so happen to visit Make sure you see what's happening at The Hive by just going to their website, cincyhive.org. That's C-I-N-C-Y, hive, H-I-V-E, dot org. Troy, I want to thank you so much for accepting my invitation into the balance room. That was really one of the most comfortable conversations that I've had in a while, so I thank you for that. The theme song for this podcast titled Thank Me Later from the project Going Live in 5 was written and produced by yours truly and performed by Ingrid Wood and the Wood Tribe Orchestra. One of the featured songs in this episode titled Hold On To These Things from the project Songs To Pray By Live With City Church Eastside was written by Troy Bronzik, B-R-O-N-S-I-N-K. You can find out all of Troy's contact information as well as the hives in the podcast description within your app. If you're not sure how to find the podcast description, that's okay, no worries. Just go to the website, thebalanceroom.com, look for episode 46, and all the information will be in there. Until next episode, this is Ingrid Wood. Even when I'm gone, my voice will still be here. I want to make sure that yours is as well. Take care, God bless, and stay balanced. This is Troy Bronsink from The Hive, and you're listening to The Balance Room Podcast.